There is something that often happens when a new pastor comes into a new appointment. Maybe this doesn't happen with every new pastor, but it has been my experience at least with some of my new appointments. What happens is that sometime early in the process of meeting and getting to know their new congregation, someone will begin to let the new pastor know who are the most important people of the church. Which ones have the most money? Who does the most work around the church? Who holds the most influence? And the tendency with the pastor is, and again, I can't speak for all pastors, but I know the case is true for some, the tendency is to pay a little bit more attention to those important people, to value their opinions more, to cater more to their interests. It's only natural perhaps even strategic. After all, where would the church be without their financing, without their effort, without their influence to get things approved and and move things along? That's the way the world works. There's one big problem with that, though. It's not biblical. It's not Christian. It's contrary to the gospel. The, The church is not called to be a human institution. Yes, it is made up of humans, but the church is a divine institution. God did not establish the church to meet our natural inclinations. He created the church to be the bride of Christ, to prepare us to live in union with himself, to equip us for his kingdom. The church is where we are supposed to be drawn out of the ways of the world and learn to live and to think like Jesus. Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones, Jesus says in Matthew 18.10. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. These little ones, as Jesus calls them, they have angels in heaven who are always looking into the face of God. This is one of those somewhat obscure verses of scripture that lends itself to the idea of guardian angels. I'm honestly not sure what to make of that concept, what few verses there are on it don't really spell out exactly who these angels are or precisely what they do for these little ones. These little ones are not necessarily children. They are the less privileged of society, probably less educated than others probably on the lower end of the spectrum when it comes to money or influence or talents. They don't have any real power. They're never going to be looked at as the pillars of the church. More likely, they're looked upon as a drag on society. That's how the world sees them. That's not the way that they should be looked upon by the church, although, unfortunately, that too will happen. Jesus tells his followers to be careful, be careful not to fall into that line of thinking. Take care that you do not look down on these little ones. They have angels in heaven, guardians, defenders, who will always look into the face of God. Who these angels are and what they do for them, we can't say for sure, but we do know this. We do know this from the perspective of heaven. In the eyes of God, these little ones are every bit as important as any other member of the church. 
Chapter 18 of Matthew's Gospel is a complex chapter with lots of great content. There's the disciples' question about greatness, and Jesus' teaching about becoming like a child. There's Jesus' statement about cutting off your hand or your foot or gouging out your eyes in order to avoid the fire of hell. There's the parable of the lost sheep. There's a teaching about discipline in the church. There's the parable of the unmerciful servant who was forgiven much but refused to forgive another. There's the phrase where two or three gather in my name. There am I among them. Lots of great stuff. These different parts of Matthew 18 are often treated as just that, different parts, individual sections. But they're not, really. When, when we read the Bible today, there are breaks in the text, there are chapter numbers and verses, often there are title headings for the different sections. Those were not written by the inspired authors of Scripture. Chapter and verse numbers were added centuries later. Title headings are the invention of translation committees. When you read through the Gospels without those insertions, you see that one section of this chapter flows right into the next without interruption. And you see that there is a thought, there is a theme, a context that flows through the whole thing. All of this chapter is about the inherent, intrinsic, holy value of each individual within the church, regardless of what they bring to the table in a worldly institutional sense, money, talent, influence, with or without these things, they are of infinite value to God and therefore should treat one another as precious children of God, regardless of how important or unimportant they are from a worldly perspective. And there is also a concern throughout this entire chapter for the vast damage that can be caused both to the individual soul and to the Christian community by sin that goes unchecked. The section right before our reading for today is the passage in which Jesus suggests if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, you should cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. We usually read those, those expressions in terms of personal morality, guarding ourselves against sin for the sake of our own salvation. That's not all that it's about. Right before going into those hyperbolic suggestions, Jesus says this, If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, if anyone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. The concern isn't just your own personal morality. The concern is for the influence that your actions have on other church, on other Christians, on the church. Back when I was in seminary, I, I liked hanging out with a group of friends from the, the church that I was working at. We always had a, a great time together. Unfortunately, our fun conversations often turned into talking about other people who weren't there. I guess you could call it gossip. It certainly was not Christ-like conversation. I justified it as harmless at the time. Looking back on it later, I, I realized that by me, a, a seminary student and future pastor, joining in, 
I was communicating to the whole group that what we were doing was just fine. It wasn't. It wasn't just fine. It wasn't okay. It wasn't harmless. It was sin. We were causing each other to stumble. That's what Jesus was talking about. The fact that you, by failing to check your own sin, can lead others into sin. Because they'll look at you and say, well, she's a Christian and she does it. It must be, not be that bad. It is that bad. If it is sin, it is bad. And it's even worse if by justifying it, you cause another child of God to stumble. Verse 10 ties that passage together with the beginning of today's passage. In both of them, Jesus highlights the importance, the holy value of these little ones. And then he tells the parable of the lost sheep. It's a familiar parable. A man owns 100 sheep. One of them goes missing. He leaves the 99 to go off in search of the one. And when he finds it, he rejoices even more for that one who, was, who is now found than the 99 who were never lost. In some ways, it's a very comforting parable. We like the fact that every person is loved and valued by God. The idea that when we go astray, God will come after us. But then again, most of us in the church probably identify more with the 99 than with the one. Many of you here have been part of the fold your whole life. You were born and raised in the church. Belief in God and faith in Jesus has always been there. That's not true for some. Some of us have wandered away from time to time like that one sheep and Christ did come find us and bring us back. Praise God for that. But still, most most church folk relate more to the 99 who stay where they're told to stay and do what they're supposed to do. And it causes us to wonder sometimes, why bother about that one troublemaker when you've got 99 that are behaving perfectly well? Wouldn't it make more sense to stay with the 99 and keep them safe and happy? What if while you're off chasing after that one that went astray, some of the other 99, they start to feel neglected and they wander off too? The point of the parable, of course, is to show that even someone who is considered one of the least of these is of tremendous value to God. Those whom Jesus calls the least of these, people who are on the margins, the ones who often feel invisible. In some ways, they are invisible. They don't have the things to offer in terms of financial support and physical abilities and influence to rally a crowd. People who could disappear and the community might not even notice. The 99 sheep did not notice when the one wandered off. If something bad were to happen to him, it's no wool off their backs. But the shepherd, the shepherd noticed. The shepherd noticed the one who had wandered away. And not only does he notice, he cares. It matters. It matters tremendously to the shepherd to bring that one back. In fact, he considered it so important that he was willing to leave the other 99 behind for a time in order to go find that one. Not that he didn't care about the other 99, not that they didn't matter, but they weren't in danger at the moment. They would be all right, but that one, that one that was in danger, he had to go out and find him. What is it that caused the one sheep to wander off? 
Sheep don't really need a reason to wander off. Sheep will wander off and get lost for no reason at all. That's why shepherds always have to keep watch. But this parable isn't about literal sheep, is it? It's about people. Specifically, it's about people in the church who sometimes wander away. This parable is not about non-Christians, those who grew up never knowing Jesus. I mean, the same principle applies. Jesus still goes out searching for them to bring them in too. But this particular chapter of the Bible is about relations within the church, among the community of believers. The image of a sheep who wanders away is about someone, someone who was once part of the flock, someone who knows the shepherd, but they strayed. They wandered. They got themselves lost. Perhaps it's because they felt like the least of these. They felt like they had nothing to offer and their presence didn't matter. Perhaps when they stopped coming, the other 99 didn't notice at first. That's got to hurt. Maybe it happens a different way. Maybe they get caught up in some sin, some addiction. There are all kinds of things in this world that can capture a person's attention, fulfill their immediate desires. One might decide to go chasing after that way of life and start heading toward the cliff. This is the thing that, that troubles me probably more than anything else as a pastor. As a pastor, I'm supposed to be like a shepherd, caring for the flock. That's where the word pastor comes from, the one who tends the flock. But let's face it, I'm not the good shepherd. No human pastor is, no human pastor could be. I don't always know who is just gone for a season and who is straying from the faith and who is wandering into danger. Jesus knows, but I don't. I wish I did, I just don't have that kind of supernatural insight. But you know, if the other 99, if the other 99 were looking out for one another, they would notice. They would notice as soon as that one wandered off, and, and they could do something about it. They should do something about it. That's exactly what the next section of chapter 18 says. The metaphors change dramatically. The image of sheep getting lost, that's gone. It's replaced by a very literal description of church members dealing with one another's sin. But it's the same theme. It's the very same thing. The sheep wandering off into danger is symbolic of a church member straying into sin. And the shepherd's desire to go after that one and draw it back into the fold is now given some specific instructions about how to do just that. First, go to the person alone to point out the fault. Notice that the initiative is not on the sinner. The sheep that wanders off isn't going to somehow just find its way back on its own. Someone, someone has to take the initiative to notice and to go find it and to lead it back. Someone who is starting down the road of sin often isn't even aware of it. Or, or if they are aware of it, they're hoping nobody else notices and they can just wander away. Most of the time, most of the time someone is aware of it. 
but they're not willing to say anything. Who am I to judge? It's not my place to say. Here's the problem with that, though. If I see my brother or sister heading into danger and I don't say anything, then I am complicit when they fall off the cliff. This whole chapter is about our accountability to one another in the Christian community. We are to look out for one another. We are to take care of one another. We are to remove stumbling blocks from one another's path. We are to guard and protect each other from sin. And we are to notice, to notice and to see something, to do something when someone who is a part of our Christian community is heading into danger. The first step is to go to them in private. This isn't about shaming. This isn't about making someone feel bad or feel judged. It's about helping. It's about redeeming. And the best way to do that is in private. Allow that person to maintain their dignity. Show that person discretion and love. If they receive what you say, if they acknowledge their sin, then they can repent and return without any disruption to the flock. That's why in the very next section of Matthew 18, Jesus goes on to teach about forgiveness. If they don't listen, however, if they don't, your responsibility doesn't end there. Why doesn't it end there? It doesn't end there because sin isn't just a private individual thing. If sin remains unchecked, then it will work its way through the whole community. Just like when I gossiped with my church friends, I made it okay for them, and that made it okay for others. And before you know it, the entire culture of the church becomes gossip rather than grace. That is not the church that Jesus purchased with his blood. The church that Jesus purchased with his blood is to be his bride, a community of people living by his ways, proclaiming his glory. So if going to the sinner in private doesn't work, then Jesus says, take one or two other people with you. Again, the desire is to bring redemption without disruption, without shame. The desire is to draw that wandering sheep back into the fold before it goes over the cliff. Perhaps with the help of two or three others, that person will be won back. If so, that's as far as it goes. Forgiveness and restoration win the day. But if not, then Jesus says, take it before the church. I know that sounds harsh. We don't like airing other people's dirty laundry, especially our friends. But here's the point. For the church to remain the church, we can't just let the dirty laundry pile up in the corner and pretend it's not there. If we do, then pretty soon it will be filling the whole room with its stench. Better to deal with it as a community, as a family of faith, to determine what is right, to discern the spirit of God together, Let's be clear, though, the intent is never to shame or to push someone out or to chase them away. The desire is always to bring them back to the fold, to pull them off the precipice, to restore them into the community of salvation. The hope is always repentance and faith. The offer is always redemption and grace. The fact remains, though, that some people just don't want to be redeemed. Some people will choose sin over salvation. Some people will not accept the ways of God. Jesus knew that would be the case. 
He gave these instructions to his disciples before there even was a church. Jesus was not surprised by the fact that there would be sin in the church or that there would be people who would choose to walk away. When they do, he says, we have to let them go. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector, Jesus said. Again, that sounds harsh. It sounds as if Jesus is saying, give up on them. That's actually not what he's saying at all. Treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Well, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He loved them. That's it. He loved them. He taught them, he ate with them, he spent time with them, he prayed for them, he went after them just like the shepherd went after the lost sheep. Jesus continued to seek out pagans and tax collectors. He's not saying wash your hands of them and forget them forever. He's saying there's only so much you can do. At some point it's on them to choose whether, whether or not to be a part of the church. Do all that you can to win them back. But if they refuse, then you have to let them go. You have to acknowledge that they, by their own free will, are no longer a part of that faith community. But you don't stop loving them. You never stop praying for them. But if someone walks away, and you haven't done anything to try and bring them back, if you don't even notice they're gone, if they start down that dangerous road and you just let them go because you don't want to hurt any feelings or ruffle any feathers, and then they fall off the cliff, and others in the church start following them off the cliff like lemmings because there's, there's no one there to stop it, woe to the world for the things that cause people to stumble, Jesus said. Jesus has placed us in community for a reason so that we can notice, so that we can take care, so that we can reach out, so that we can love, so that we can offer redemption and reconciliation, so that we can hold one another accountable in Jesus Christ. Let us take care of one another in love. Let us watch over one another in Christ, that none may go astray. Amen.